This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. All right, this is a this is a special episode because this is our first ever guest who's been invited on a second time, James from Open Path. It's happening, my man. It is uh, it is great to be here, Chase, and to know that I am uh, hosting for the second time. It's a little bit like Saturday Night Live, where you know if you can get to the fifth, uh, you know SNL host, you get a special jacket. Yeah, my hope is that, uh, and, and what I love is it, it's you think you're hosting your own podcast. But you're not. I'm actually uh, I'm actually hosting it on your behalf, and it's great to be here. By the way, Chase, it's great to have you on the podcast today. <laughs> this is uh, you know you're an innovative guy, so I should have should have expected a innovative take, and I dig it. Um, well, I I like the idea of getting if you get to a second or a third on this show, getting something, and I do like that it's your idea because now that you've sold to Motorola, I think you could start to buy the jackets that we give to people. So, and now that you're the host, I whatever you want to buy from me, because now I've been on multiple times this show, and I'm, I'm all for it now. Well, um, the, uh, the new uh, sort of luxury item that I plan on giving the five-time hosts of the uh, Chase HQO podcast is likely going to be a very tight-fitted t-shirt. Yeah. Um, probably a tank top. And uh, I think it's going to accentuate a lot of uh, what you got going on because it, it really is about you. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I I like talking to people that really get me, you know? Yeah. Which you do. Because, like, for instance, I know I know you hate wearing hats. I've literally never <laughs> seen you in a hat before. Yeah. Uh, I know you hate wearing T-shirts mm -hmm. uh, because you always love to wear a button down and, and look sharp. True. Uh, and really class it up. And um, and I know you don't really follow sports teams at all, so I never have to worry about you know seeing a you know a team logo anywhere on you. So I figured a tight fitted uh, tank top just seemed to to be your vibe. God, you get me. It's crazy. But so lots happened since the last time we spoke. Uh, a lot has happened, yeah. So uh, we we announced in mid July that uh, Motorola Solutions uh, was going to and has acquired OpenPath. Congratulations. When did you guys start talking to them? Uh, probably around March um, of 2021. It was a pretty quick process. What, uh, what really moved the process along was that Motorola came to us with tremendous conviction about wanting to be a leader in the access control space. And that was what really just accelerated this process. Because at first, we're like, all right, well, we're going to partner, we're going to integrate. And they're like, no, no, we, we want to own you. We want to be a leader in this category. And, uh, you know, you look at what they've done in the, the video security space and how they've acquired uh, Vigilon a few years back, Pelco, Indigo Vision, WatchGuard. They've built out this really considerably, you know, strong market leading position in video security and uh, have done so uh, with, you know, a, a lot of organic growth on the assets that they've acquired and inorganic growth in terms of, you know, going after you know, really interesting brands and pulling pulling products together. So when they explain their strategy to include us and really sort of lead the access control initiative, it made a ton of sense. And, and, and that was just super compelling. So we did it. So and what is as much as you're able to share, what is their vision for OpenPath? Uh, so look, we want to be a leader 
if not the leader, in the access control category and for physical access control security. And um, what we love about Motorola is that we get scale in order to do that. Uh, we have uh, access to their global sales force. We have access to their uh, global reseller channel, uh, which is a powerful you know, team of folks out there uh, selling not just you know, physical access control security, but you know, video security and a host of other uh, capabilities. Uh, and we have access to their supply chain, which means that we can now mitigate some of the challenges that you know, new startups who are making a hardware product have to sort of deal with in today's uh, really challenging supply chain economy. Uh, and so those were you know, elements for us which were really important. Uh, another piece of it was that we would not have to spend any time raising capital. And as you well know, uh, we all, uh, as you know, startup entrepreneurs, spend half of our uh, year raising money and uh, doing presentations and courting investors and then raising the next round and, and managing our board and all that. So re the relief of not having to deal with that and having you know, substantial capital behind us to grow and to hire and to continue to do uh, what it is we wanted to innovate in the category was super important. And then this combination of video and security over the long term, I think, is is sort of the winning strategy in the physical security category because the two go so tightly together. Uh, you know, so much like when you look at you know the mobile experience that you create for tenants and landlords uh, in buildings, you know, access control is a core component of that. Uh, but there's so many other pieces to how you have to think about uh, people coming into and out of the building, their experience in that building in terms of connecting to, uh, you know, the cafeteria or the cafe or the ordering system uh, to figure out packages and drop off, uh, you know, to access the gym or common amenities. There's like so many different things you have to think about that are core. With physical security, video is a core capability that we needed to figure out. And we've done so through partnerships. And now what we have is an ecosystem of third-party companies that make great video solutions and also a parent company that makes a great video security solution that we can leverage. So to me, those, uh, all those things combined give us a chance to really sort of jump ahead in this category and uh, try to get on every door we can in as quick, as quick amount of time as we can do it. And you've been, keep me honest here, but you're heavily focused on office, right? And is the idea with Motorola, are you going to go more broadly? I know you guys do some other other categories, but where's the where's the go-to-market focus or how does that change? You know, obviously getting bought by Motorola, how does it change the go-to-market strategy or does it? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, we have about eight different verticals where we're really strong. Uh, we're really strong in education. We're really strong in retail. We're really strong in uh, gyms uh, and uh, religious uh, organizations like churches, uh, synagogues and mosques. Uh, you know, obviously we have a great footprint today in commercial real estate, which is where we've been focused, but also in the enterprise and also in uh, multifamily residential, we have, you know, really strong traction. So mm. I think anywhere you see a commercial grade door that needs to be electrified and uh, locked with an access credential, you'll find open path. And we have, an, uh, I think, a really relevant product for anyone who has that. Uh, where we're not as focused is on apartment doors of, uh, you know, apartment buildings. Uh, and so we have uh, integrations that we've done with wireless locks. So Allegion uh, is our key partner there. Uh, and we're going to continue to add wireless lock providers to our portfolio so that we can access more of the multifamily space. One of the interesting things about the acquisition was that um, uh, Avigilon, uh, which is the brand that Motorola owns in the video security space, 
actually has a, a pretty kick-ass uh, access control product. Hmm. It's called ACM Access Control Manager. Uh, it's branded under the Vigilon name. And so when we joined Motorola, they rolled that on-premise access control solution in under our management. So now OpenPath really has a cloud-based solution and an on-premise solution that we can offer to customers, which allows us to meet customers kind of where they stand. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in the access control space and in physical security in general is that customers are at different stages of where they're kind of trying to get to in their physical security evolution. They might today have disparate systems running in many buildings and they're trying to consolidate onto one. Uh, they might be trying to move to a single card solution across multiple systems. Uh, they might be trying to migrate from an on-prem system to uh, the cloud to reduce cost and management hassle or to centrally manage systems. Or they might be trying to enable mobile uh, to sort of get that mobile experience that's more convenient, more secure. And so now with the on-premise solution, which is a mercury-based solution, uh, it allows us to have uh, really an opportunity to say to the customer, wherever you are in your evolution on access control, we got you covered. Mm. We've got on-prem, we've got cloud, we've got mobile, we got it all. And it also gives us a great roadmap moving forward to be very open in terms of, hey, you come to us with the hardware that you have, you come to us with a problem, we can solve it. And we've got all these different variations that we can you know, bring to bear for the customer. Yeah, I mean, coming from the tech world, particularly early stage startups, I think our world tends to overestimate where people are in their journey to the cloud. What I mean, what do you see when you look out in the market in terms of how much of, you know, when you say commercial grade door, but how much of that world, which it's a big universe that you're talking about in terms of those eight verticals now, how how much of that estimated back of the napkin has migrated to the cloud in terms of where their, you know, ACS is? Less than 10% of uh, the commercial door market has moved to a cloud-based solution. And, and what, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years focused on is, is the commercial building, the base building, getting that landlord, that port, real estate portfolio owner to make that move because they're kind of the gatekeeper to the enterprise that is a tenant within that space. And if you can get the base building and you can move the parking, the visitor management, the base building access control, the common amenity space access control to a mobile or a cloud enabled solution, you now have an opportunity to really sort of open up that experience to all the tenants in that building. And, you know, we look at it a little chicken and egg in terms of do you start with the enterprise that's the tenant or do you start with the, the building owner, the, the property management company. But I, I'm leaning more towards it starts a little bit more with the property management company or the building owner because it's a lot tougher for a tenant to sort of say, hey, I, I want to put this in my office, but now I still have to carry a key card for my base building. But it's a lot easier if the base building says, hey, we're mobile enabled. You can manage it all via cloud to sort of have a tenant upgrade to that mobile or cloud-based experience. So where's it going with the enterprise? Particularly, you know, you made a comment before we started recording about hybrid being the way of the future, I think, or potentially more remote. I don't believe fully in remote. I do believe in hybrid, but in terms of what it means from a service perspective, right? Like what we're seeing is companies are looking more for hybrid. What that inherently means is that the enterprise is looking for more services that are included in their workplace, right? It's not necessarily a core competency of the company to run their own workplace, which is why things like we work in, uh, these flex providers are having such a strong rebound. I mean, 
we have envisioned a future where when we come into a building, a tech-enabled workplace is part of the product of what the landlord sells. But what do you think the reality is in terms of the stack of technology that makes sense for, say, a base building, multi-tenanted landlord to provide or not provide? Or is it more the service of enabling whatever the enterprise is choosing to use? Yeah, it, it, I think it depends if the property is uh, single focused on commercial real estate or if you're looking at a mixed use property, right? Because you have different uh, experiences that people uh, expect in, in those properties. Uh, I think in general for the commercial office space, the idea of managing and uh, understanding presence becomes really critical to that mobile experience that you're creating. So understanding where the human is, whether they're coming into the office frequently or infrequently, what their path is as they come in, and do they park, do they you know, pull a bike in, do they get dropped off in an Uber? Uh, when they come in, how do they access the space in the building that's important to them? You know, do they stop and get a coffee first at the kiosk downstairs and then do they hop in the elevator and head up to their office or are they coming down at the same time of day for lunch every day? Uh, with all of the time shifting that's happening as a result of hybrid, we're seeing that none of the standard staffing needs, uh, space management needs, uh, parking system needs, uh, capacity that you would expect for, you know, lunch service or a number of bike racks to have for people. Like none of those numbers and estimates and, and kit that you've deployed is, is appropriate anymore. And so being able to flexibly manage your building to accommodate people based on presence and understanding who they are, where they are and what they want that the mobile app gives you, that to me is sort of the, the key uh, opportunity that our technologies jointly present to landlords today. And I think that is what will allow us to manage through this hybrid uh, sort of, uh, you know, next couple of years of, okay, we're going to do hybrid. We're not sure when people are going to go back, how they're going to go back. And it's going to be different for one company versus another. It's going to be different for one building versus another. And knowing that data and having it available to people because everyone's got the mobile app on their phone will allow people to just be nimble and flexible. And without that, I think that it's just going to be a complete guessing game. And you're going to have landlords unwilling to deploy capital because they don't know what the ROI is going to be. You're going to have tenants unwilling to sign long-term leases because they don't know what their space needs are. And I think that our obligation as technology companies in this category is to provide everyone with that data. And I think we're doing a great job of it uh, between the two of us. And so it becomes super important to have our technology in these buildings. You and I both in one side of the table or the other been involved in acquisitions. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you've been super impressed from an integration perspective. And so when you think about unlocking you know, the growth of something like OpenPath, where you know, you've got a pretty superior product in a lot of ways, um, but it's a slow moving and uh, old industry where now you've got the might of a larger organization, like how's the integration going? And been a part of it um it should unlock a lot of potential but these things are easy to screw up right super easy to screw up i think you know the statistics on successful acquisitions and integrations are pretty poor uh i would say that uh if you look at the history of motorola solutions which we did prior to you know uh being acquired by them 
we saw that you know, this is a company that has gone through pretty uh, transformative uh, you know, uh, process uh, when they spun off the core business to their old uh, sort of Motorola was their mobility business. You know, they spun that off uh, in the, you know, 2011 or 2013 around then. And um, that was you know, sold off to Google. That's the mobility business, which was then you know, sold to Lenovo and different things happened with it. And they also um, divested their uh, set-top box business, which was you know, selling those uh, DVR set-top boxes and such that cable companies use. So they, they really sort of refined their business down to uh, the communications business, which is the software that they sell into police agencies like 911 software, all the uh, radio communication technology that they have, the Motorola, you know, radios are something we're all very familiar with and, and are, you know, a, a big sort of, you know, popular product in the market. Uh, and they sort of said, okay, how do we leverage the uh, manufacturing capabilities that we have, uh, the customer relationships that we have, and the know-how that we have to really grow? And they started to really focus on security. And in the security realm, video was a big area of focus. And so they acquired Avigilon, uh, they acquired Pelco, they acquired IndigoVision, they acquired WatchGuard. And they've built up what is now, I think, like a billion-dollar division within Motorola that does video security and access control. Mm. And that's the group that we're in. And because it's grown, uh, one, uh, through acquisition, so inorganically, like I've added all these brands, but two, uh, it, those brands have really flourished within Motorola and have grown organically. Uh, we have taken on the uh, legacy access control product, the ACM product that you know Motorola has. So they've aligned uh, sort of our incentives as an access control brand with the existing team that's at Motorola so that the product teams are now aligned, the sales teams are now aligned. And they you know, were really thoughtful about doing that so there's no conflict of, oh, I want to sell my product and you want to sell your product. We all now want to sell each other's products. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I've just been super impressed with how they've done it. Uh, and there's a dedicated resource in every discipline. So there's a finance resource, an HR resource, uh, uh, IT resource, just who handle the acquisitions and sort of uh, curate your experience as you come in under the fold over months or years. And, and again, haven't seen that at a lot of other companies that we've been with. No. So, uh, you know, we've been pretty impressed. That's really interesting. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, how do you go about educating a group like Motorola? Obviously, some of the benefit is scale from a go-to-market perspective. So how do you get worked into, you know, their, their go-to-market machine and activate that on open path to have? Uh, so far, so good. I think we're, we're sort of taking baby steps to make sure that one, uh, our sales teams can cross sell one another's products. I don't think they're planning on getting a lot of sales from the open path team cross selling their product, but <laughs> certainly their team being able to represent the open path product. You could carry a book, man. Come on. I, I can carry a book. It'll be more of a pamphlet, but uh, nonetheless, <laughs> it, what I would say is this, that, you know, we have access now to their, uh, you know, hundreds of salespeople within the division that we're in. We also have a great uh, channel that they've enabled. And as you know, in access control, it, it all has to go with the channel. Yeah. We sell 100% through channel. So, you know, the security system integrators, the audiovisual folks, the folks that, you know, deploy video surveillance systems who want to also deploy access control can now take on the OpenPath product. And so that opens us up to a whole new world of system integrators that can, you know, start to offer our product and, and put us forward. So that's the project that we have in place today is to really train and enable both the salespeople at Motorola 
as well as the sales channel that Motorola enjoys, and to uh, pull those into the Open Path sort of uh, you know brand, and that's what we're doing. So uh, you know we're, we're we're deep into it right now, and certainly uh, excited about the early results. And are you guys hiring like crazy? We are hiring like crazy. So I will say to anyone who's listening, or at least trying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we can talk about that. But anyone's listening, I'm looking for a product marketing person. I'm looking for great people on my sales engineering team. Looking for great salespeople. Looking for engineers. Basically, uh, the same jobs that we're all looking for, we're hiring for. And and I have to say, it is a tough market right now uh, to find people. And not just at the high end. Not just like you know the the high priced engineers. But also just you know you know some of the more basic jobs like accounts payable. Why do you why do you think it's so? I mean, it's been hard for a while and engineers and designers and things like that. But across the board, it does feel harder. What do you think? I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you know part of what you know everybody's talking about is that because of the stimulus checks and because of all uh, the the work that the government's done to help people get through COVID that people uh, who might be in uh, jobs that they're not that uh, excited about are taking a little time off and taking advantage of, of that income as a way to, you know, not have to sort of go to a job they, they're not that excited about. Mm -hmm. I think as a result of COVID, people are also taking a moment to say, okay, um, what is my work-life balance and what does it look like? Do I want to live in this expensive city or move to someplace that's less expensive? And then what are my you know, opportunities to work remote for a, a cool company with a cool product or service that I like, uh, but do so remote. And then if I move to somewhere else, you know, can I find a local job there? Uh, and I think all of those dynamics are coming to bear and making it a little bit more difficult uh, for people to uh, choose a job right now and to commit to it because um, there's so many other things that they're worried about. Yeah. I mean, how are you guys? Are you guys running into the same thing? Yeah, I mean, we're we're opening up more hubs and more cities. Obviously, we're you know, I'm personally been a part of our mission, but like even outside of HQO, if I were working on something else, um, I believe there's value in like I don't. I think it's very hard to kind of create culture and team camaraderie and things like that purely remotely. Um, you know, when you're when you're just a face on a screen, you tend to become a, a number in a spreadsheet. And there are a lot of good companies, by the way, that have a different philosophy on this. But I think if you look at human nature and um, innovation tends to cluster and environment has a huge impact on behavior. Um, I think that the, the future is going to be hybrid, right? Where um, the concept of nine to five made a lot of sense several decades ago, right? In terms of how people worked, but um, how people work now, it's somewhat superfluous. So, you know, before COVID, we had this like one day a week work from anywhere policy that everyone thought was like incredibly progressive. Um, obviously it's a little bit different now, but you know, we run into, we've had to open up hubs in New York. We're doing a lot of hiring in other markets because you have to, it's just incredibly, um, somewhat upside down in that there's certain pockets uh, of people who have been like really negatively affected uh, by this. And yet the stock market and particularly the technology companies and categories have caught tailwinds in a lot of ways, right? So it's just compensation is, um, is high for a, a lot of folks that 
you have to be matching um, competitive comp, but also within the lines of like what you see as a culture fit, which I think is, you know, we've got an incredibly high bar. I know you guys did as well in terms of how you guys thought about culture. Um, and we're willing to also wait, like if we can get a B, B plus person, um, you know, we'll wait. Like we're not, we're not trying to move which is somewhat contrary to high growth startups, but we're not trying to move really fast on headcount. Um, all of our hiring managers are told to wait until they can get an A, a fit. How many people do you have now? We're about 150. And uh, are they spread out? Like uh, are most people in your corporate office or they're all over? So we're probably 80 something percent in Boston, but that number will go down as we continue to grow. So. We just took um, a decent space in New York City, Penn One, um, super convenient to Penn Station. If anybody in the area is listening and is looking for uh, a great place to work now that Bornado is rolling out all of their uh, repositioned asset at Penn One, there's a new gym, there's a big industrious activation, food and bed is phenomenal. Um, so we're hiring there. We've got people in London and Paris as well. And then we have go-to-market pods uh, in Chicago, uh, Southern California by you. We'll be putting one somewhere in the Southeast, uh, probably Atlanta. So we're hiring all over. And is PropTech still as hot as it was before in terms of, you know, people just flocking to this category and really wanted to get involved? Are you seeing as much interest? Uh, not, I mean, just in terms of people wanting to make a career in PropTech. I certainly see a lot of capital moving towards it in terms of people um, to some degree. I still think prop tech is like kind of a silly term. It's just so broad, right? Like um, what falls under the umbrella of prop tech in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of the most interesting things about the category is um, technology people tend to live in a bubble um, and we've had a really interesting kind of experience pulling people out of industry and commercial real estate where there's a lot of things that technology companies do well. There's also a lot of things that technology companies don't do as well that established industries, you know, we tend to think that we like reinvent everything. Um, or we've invented when we're really reinventing. Uh, and I think a prime example of this is I'm sure you saw, you know, that famous Spotify org chart as to how they ran their um, product teams, which was like a matrix organization. And like a lot of people in tech and startups were like, this is like the most innovative thing. Like the, the matrix organization concept has been around for a very long time. Like Spotify certainly didn't kind of pioneer that, but, um, We've had a great time bringing people from lots of different kind of industries and backgrounds together. So I do think that's a uh, a good thing compared to you know, some other areas of technology where vertical SaaS, we just have this, what I think is a really large talent pool in commercial real estate for people that are looking for and understand that the future of commercial real estate is going to be tech enabled. So we, uh, particularly on the go-to-market side, uh, we're seeing success there. So, uh, so I have a different question for you since I'm the host. Um, and, uh, I guess my LinkedIn is just blown up <laughs> with pictures of uh, CEOs and investors that I know uh, sitting there ringing the bell at NASDAQ mm. 
taking a company public. It just every day there's like another uh, another company, right? Yeah. And how does that make you feel when you see that? Does that make you feel like something you aspire to? Like that's got to be me. Or does it make you feel like suckers? What are you doing running a public company? Or like, how do you feel about it? I mean, the minute that I look at the picture, it's just overwhelming envy because it's like, oh man, that's <laughs> imagine if we were doing that. And then quickly, I, you know, that goes away. But uh, no, I mean, the way that we think about building a company and like career in general, what I tell every single person that joins HQO is the same thing is like, um, I tend to roll my eyes a little bit at, uh, entrepreneurs and people that speak like adamantly in public about like, like IPO or bus or, you know, whatever it is that they believe. And then there are some people that, you know, have, will say like, we're going to do X and flip it. And at some point, you know, what I do think is cool. I'm a pretty big fan of the author, Jim Collins, uh, who wrote built to last and good to great. Um, at some point building what is, the platinum standard in a category, I think it would be a really cool thing to achieve. So everybody tends to think of like the big guys that have done it, right? Like Disney has dominated entertainment for, you know, um, tens, uh, maybe a hundred years now. I don't know exactly when they started. Um, people tend to just follow like very large industries, Procter and Gamble, whoever it is. Um, I have a buddy who runs an oyster company. It's not a massive market, but they're like best in class at what they do. And it's just a local, uh, little company here in Duxbury, Massachusetts. And it's just cool to see somebody that's best at their craft. Right. Um, so that's kind of how we think about building. When you think about like enterprise value and liquidity for investors, that's something that I think you actually do need to be pragmatic about. Um, you know, there's macro uh, circumstances that you have to take into consideration. Um, sometimes going public is the right thing to do. Sometimes selling to a big company that's going to maximize your chance of uh, creating the best company is the right thing to do. Um, so try to build what's best in category. And then if all the things align for you to go public or whatever it is, great. But I think too much people put too much emphasis on capital events. Like capital is a means to an end, right? Yeah. What about you? You want to be ringing the bell? I, I feel like you answered a little bit. You dropped that like, oh man, I can't believe you're going to sign up for running a public company. I think it's hilarious what's happening with some of the SPACs because like when you're at a certain size, and I'm not going to name any names, but like there are certain companies that are SPACing and I'm like, holy shit. I couldn't imagine right now on a quarterly basis having to do what you have to do as a public company at a certain size, right? Yeah, I don't know if those companies have true visibility to their numbers such that they could really deliver on quarterly guidance. Uh, and I think that would be, um, that would be uh, very stressful to be running one of those companies. And, right. You know, uh, there's a certain size and scale uh, that you kind of need in order to justify the cost and the overhead of being public mm -hmm. and then you know can you maintain the growth rate and can you manage investor expectations and i think you know you and i spend a lot of time managing our investors expectations uh but it's a lot easier when it's in the private world and, and you're sitting in a boardroom and it's uh, not fully disclosed to everyone and you can say look we're going to ride out this quarter because of this that or we want to invest in this and we want to do that but 
public markets seem to be uh, a lot more share a lot more scrutiny. And uh, I think there's a lot of activists out there as well that mm-hmm. you know scared the pieces out of me if I were running a small a small cap company uh, that had just IPO'd. So. Yeah, I'm certainly happy to be part of a, a very large, formidable organization with great leadership that, you know, takes care of all that. And I can just, you know, put my head down and, and you know, focus on product and growth and making customers happy. That's the piece that makes me happy every single day. And I try to put aside the professional jealousy that I might get when I look at other startup folks who, you know, sit there and ring the bell. Because uh, I think what makes me happy at the end of the day is probably not getting that picture and ringing the bell, but really, you know, building something really cool and, and growing it and, and making my customers happy. And, and that's what gets me every morning. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, Simon Sinek talks about uh, business is an infinite game. It's not a finite game. Right. So I don't totally understand other people when they're, you know, somebody goes public they're not taking anything away. Like it's certainly admirable. Um, so that's not something that bothers me too much, but I mean, a lot, there's too many companies chasing too few problems in almost every startup category. I don't think it's unique to prop tech, but prop tech certainly feels, um, crowded in a lot of ways. I mean, you guys, um, raised solid institutional capital, um, built up a ton of enterprise value in what is a relatively short time frame in the grand scheme of things. So, I mean, what would you, uh, and I have no doubt that you are advising uh, some entrepreneurs, um, but what's your advice to people in prop tech? Because, I mean, you guys are obviously uh, one of the, I wouldn't say few, but you're a success story. And I think prop tech is still so new that there aren't a ton to look at right um and i think there's a lot of uh emerging companies that are um probably in a weird time with covid and everything else but what would you what advice would you give to people uh i mean it, it, to other entrepreneurs who are starting companies and building companies in the prop tech space when i look back uh on the last five years since we started i'd say uh our choice of investors ended up being, you know, tremendously important, having folks that uh, had true conviction on the category and on our value proposition and um, were able to support us as we noodled around and figured out the go-to-market model and the product feature set and the nuances around, uh, you know, which customers to target. And uh, I'm sure we made some missteps along the way, but I think they were really patient with us. And so... uh, taking on patient money that uh, allows the entrepreneur to really uh, get to where they want to get on, on their own time and pace, I think is a key component of it. Um, and then also uh, what I like about access control is that it's a must have product. So it's a, it's a line item that everybody has. They buy locks for the doors. They buy physical access control systems because they have to, not because they want to. And, uh, and so going in there and offering a better mousetrap was a really uh, nice way to sort of take that existing budget and make sure that we captured it. Uh, I think it's a lot more challenging for entrepreneurs in the prop tech space who are going into greenfield and creating a new category that doesn't exist and trying to sell something that doesn't really have a line item. And they're coming in with an ROI sale or they're coming in with some other kind of concept. That's a lot harder 
to do. I think the rewards are potentially much bigger, but it's a lot harder to do. Where was that advice for me three years ago, man? Because that's where we sit. <laughs> that is exactly where you sit. But like, look, think about it. I mean, yeah. you guys have just barreled through and you just, uh, you, you, you raised a tremendous amount of money from great solid investors. You know, you had early customers that were committed to the platform, committed to the technology and have allowed you all to sort of, you know, take your product to the next level in partnership with them really help solve problems that they had. And, and that's the kind of things that you want as a founder. You want to find those customers who will work with you and grow with you. You want to find those investors who will get committed to the vision and get behind it. And I, I think you've done it the right way for something that was uh, an idea that people didn't know they needed to solve, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. Even. Well, I'm not sure there's a better way to end than uh, that, that right there, my friend. I, that's actually, we're just going to cut that piece and that'll probably be where we publish. You know, that right there might put it on the homepage of HQL, your testimony for us. So I appreciate that, my man. Well, congrats on all the success. Uh, congrats on being a second time host of the Let's Go show. That's a, I mean, selling to Motorola is one thing, but being, you're like the Alec Baldwin of uh, uh, the Let's Go show now. Isn't he, hasn't he hosted SNL the most? I think, was it him? I, I know Steve Martin's up there, uh, Tom Hanks is up there, Paul Simon's up there. I'd probably, you know, much rather be the Tom Hanks than I would be the Alec Baldwin. But probably. <laughs> we'll go with Hanks. That's fair. That's good. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Great to see you as always. Always good to catch up, bud. For more information about how HQO can help you connect with your workforce and make smarter CapEx decisions and drive more NOI, visit us at hqo.com. This is Chase Garbarino. Thanks for tuning in. Let's go.